Hey folks, welcome to the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast, Episode 2. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and if you're one of those guys who videos your hunts or you've considered videoing your hunts, then today's podcast episode is just for you. Uh, we're going to be talking with Caleb Copeland of Copeland Creative about all aspects of, of videoing hunts from what equipment you'll need to tips and techniques for getting the best footage. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about editing that footage and just the uh, the hunting industry or the video side of the hunting industry in general. Uh, and Caleb will even talk a little bit about what it takes uh, to get a, a career in that in the hunting industry. So good stuff. Um, stick around. This is going to be a great podcast episode. I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So let's uh, jump on the line here with Caleb. All right, I have on the line my friend and uh, outdoor videographer and, and editor extraordinaire, Caleb Copeland. Uh, Caleb, how you doing, buddy? All good, man. Can't complain. Wouldn't do any good if I did. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, yeah, like I was, uh, we were talking a little bit here before we started recording. I'm just, uh, man, trying to wait for uh, some some cooler days here to get out and uh, do a little scouting and run some trail cameras but uh you're in georgia I, just like me so if you're waiting on too cool of a day then you're backing up if you're waiting on too cool is this gonna be hot until middle of october november if you're in georgia like me yeah 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 that's why it's gonna be uh i'll have to wait till deer season if i yeah if i wait for cooler half, temps so halfway through deer season yeah i'm just gonna have to suck it up and, and sweat it out i guess yeah um Hey, first of all, I appreciate you taking the time out here on a Saturday to to talk to me a little bit about, you know, filming and, and editing hunts and uh, just kind of the, the state of the, the outdoor television and, and video industry. Yeah, no problem, uh, man. But before we kind of dive into those topics, maybe you can just kick things off by, you know, giving us a little bit of, of your backstory as far as how you got started video and hunts and you know, how that turned into a, uh, a career in the hunting industry. Yeah. Well, I'll try to condense the story. I've told it so many times I, I can tell it pretty quick now, but, um, actually in 2000 and it would have been 2006 or seven, uh, my brother, I signed my brother up for a contest in field and stream magazine for a thing called generation wild. And by winning this, contest he got to be on a show called outdoor icons he got to uh, go on a hunt with real tree go real tour real tree farms do a bunch of really cool stuff and i signed him up he didn't even know that um i had signed him up because you had to be 18 and i was 20 21 at the time well, lo and behold he ends up winning and part of winning uh, this contest was they wanted him to do video blogs for Field and Streams website and Generation Wilds website. I wanted his video blogs to be better than the rest of the other contestant winners. So I would produce some, I would shoot multiple cameras and, um, you know, do the best I could on what lim limited knowledge that I had in running a camera, which at the time was virtually none. And uh, turns out it, they really enjoyed it, really liked it. Um, he did do well, uh, you know, above and beyond what the other kids did. And they asked him to stay on and do some more work for him. And he told them that he didn't do any of that, that I had done it. And so they paid me to do a web series um, when I was like 21 years old. It was god awful looking back at it. I thought I knew what I was doing, but <laughs> I essentially was getting paid to, to film some hunts. And um, that was while I was still in college. And uh, shortly after college, I uh, worked in IT, hated that. And uh, I had pitched an idea for a TV show to Jeff Foxworthy through a friend of a friend. 
and um, that ended up turning into a, a job where I produced the web series uh, Fox Really Outdoors Inside and Out for a little over three and a half years. Worked for um, a production company that did a bunch of hunting shows for five years. And then a little over two years ago, I left to go start my own company. And now I'm doing virtually the same thing just for myself and not for someone else. So uh, that's how we got here. Good deal. Now, I know the production company you work for, um, I mean, they handled some some pretty big name shows, didn't you? Yeah, I, um, I was fortunate enough to get to work on work on some of the best of the best shows and work with some of the best of the best people. Um, and I owe my experience and a lot of my, you know, skill set in the early days to them, you know, almost all of them, because it was on the job training. Um, for me, I, I got hired to a job that I was not qualified for. And, um, you know, when I was there, we were producing Jeff Foxworth's Inside and Out, Craig Morgan's All Excess Outdoors, Mossy Oak Gamekeepers, The Crush with Lee and Tiffany, um, Man, the, the habit, which was my baby that I'm still producing t- today. Um, uh, we did some of the Under Armour short films. We did, gosh, I don't even remember, uh, Greg Ritz Hunt Masters. I mean, when I left, we were doing seven television shows and uh, a web series for Under Armour. So we were doing eight productions at one time, and we did not have enough people to be doing eight productions. <laughs> um, so it was it was one of those things to where uh, I learned a lot. Um I owe a lot to our production manager who's no longer there. He taught me a a lot uh, in a very short amount of time. It was trial by fire. You know, I got sat down at my desk and handed a hard drive and was like, you know, edit this show for me. You know, best of luck. Because at the time they were stretched so thin, they didn't have time to sit down and teach me the proper way of doing things. So it was like, take it into his office, let him see it and him rip it apart and then go do it again. And then him rip it apart and do it again to the point to where I was almost in tears some of the times. Cause I was like, I, I really don't know how to do this any different. And then, you know, he had to sit down and show me exactly what he, he wanted and expected of me. And it was, it was really good for me to see it. And, uh, I learned an incredible amount. I learned more in three months working with the guys at sub seven than I did doing it on my own for three and a half years. So, um, it's, it's, it's amazing what you can learn with people that know what they're doing. Yeah. That's, that's crazy to think that it, it all started with a, a contest yep. for your brother. That, yeah. That's pretty wild. It so is. it really is. So how, how did you learn, um, prior to going to work for, for the production company, for the stuff you did with your brother, was that just, I mean, did that you just pick just, that up? Yeah, that was all self-taught and looking back at it, you can tell cause it's bad. <laughs> Everything about it's bad, but luckily it was good enough to be better than what the other kids were doing. And they saw initiative, they saw drive, they saw a passion for what I was trying to do. And, um, and it resonated and it turned into a career for me now that I've been doing professionally for eight and a half years and I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Well, that's very cool. Now, now what was your role specifically with the production company? I mean, was, was you primarily focused just on producing one show or did you have pieces in all the shows or how did that work? Yeah. The kind of the way that we structured it is um, I was, I was considered a, uh, a field producer editor to where, we had a lot of guys that were just field producers and um, a couple of guys that were just editors. There was only really two of us in the office that could do both or that did both primarily. And I was one of the ones that did both. And essentially what we had is we had, you had a show that was assigned to you. I was essentially the showrunner for the habit. 
Um, that was my baby. I brought it in the house. I got it going, you know, helped develop the look and the feel and the, uh, the characters and everything. And I was responsible for that show for lining up hunts, um, doing, you know, getting dates, making sure we had the right licenses, the right, you know, the right, uh, permissions. Um, we had the right people in place. We had camera gear, we had hotel rooms. We, I mean, you, you, you name it, you know, the whole aspect of that production, um, fell on my shoulders a lot of the time. You know, I had help with some of it. Um, but the first couple of years we had to do it on our shoestring budget in order to be able to make any money. And, um, that was kind of my baby. And then when we weren't filming, which we would usually film a hundred and hundred to 130 ish days a year is usually what I would film. And then I was in the office the rest of the time editing. So I, uh, I think I figured it up one time. My last, my last year at sub seven, I filmed, I think it was 22 episodes of TV and I think I edited 12. So that was, um, right at almost two seasons of TV and a full season of edit. Um, so it's, that's a lot for one person, but I wasn't even, uh, I'm not a fast editor by no means. Um, our, uh, our chief editor when I was there, his name's Nate Thomas. Um, he's a, he's a, a magician and he's a lot faster than I am. And he, I, I couldn't even tell you a number of how many shows he edits a year, but he's, his value is two or three editors, not just one, just because of how efficient he is. Um, but that's what he does every day. He goes in, he sits down at his desk, he looks at the computer and he grinds it out. And I'm, I'm more of a guy that sits down for two or three hours. I have to get up and walk away and do something else. Think about something else. Whereas he can stare at a computer screen all day and just crank out edits. And he's <laughs> extremely creative. He's, um, really, really, really good at what he does. I would venture to guess he's as good or better than anybody out there in this industry. Um, he could be making a lot more money working for ESPN or somebody else, but um, he does the hunting thing and he's good at it. Yeah, I'd say guys like that are are very few and far between. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you got to uh, you've got to travel a lot and see a lot of cool stuff. Um, I have, you know, filming these hunts. What what are some of your your favorite or most memorable experiences to date? Oh man, um, I always say my favorite episode that I ever produced was probably a, actually a trapping episode in Alabama with one of my really good buddies, Casey Shootman. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that shoot just because I, I learned so much um, about trapping, about coyotes, about behavior. Um, Probably the, the the coolest location I've ever been is either uh, I did a moose hunt in the Yukon, um, on, you know, a bow hunt on the Yukon on the uh, McMillan River. That was amazing. Um, done South Africa. South Africa was awesome. And anytime you get to go out west, you know, especially being from the south, getting to go do an elk hunt or a mule deer hunt or an antelope hunt out west, it's just such a different place. It's a different environment. It's a different feel with elevation. Um, and you're getting to chase animals that we don't have here. So uh, that's always by far my favorite is to go any anything that's out west. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I've been out there a few times um, for antelope and, and for mule deer. And, uh, it, man, it, there is, there's just a draw to it that makes you 
and I'd go back every year if I could. It's I'll go back like more than said, once just, a year. I go, <laughs> yeah. go, I go as many times as my wife will let me go, even whether it's work or not. But I always set aside at least 10 days, a week to 10 days, hopefully two weeks a year in September to go elk hunting. That's my favorite thing to do personally. Um, I'll either I usually do one or two elk hunts a year. And then I'll, I'll usually go to Oklahoma for a whitetail hunt. I've got a buddy that's got an incredible place out there that I whitetail hunt. So those are generally my two that I try and do for myself every year. And now I've, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have some awesome clients that I can, I actually have ways to make money while I'm doing those hunts. So it's, you know, it's not really even costing me anything out of pocket to go. Um, so it, it makes it that much easier. And it's really easy to justify to your wife. You're going to go on a week elk hunt when you're going to make money while you're hunting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. It, that, that makes life a little easier, but, uh, I, uh, got to do a bear hunt this year. Um, didn't get a bear, but, um, got to go on my first personal, um, bear hunt i've filmed several of them got to go to saskatchewan and did one in alberta last year but just it, it's just for me it's cool to experience new stuff get to go to new places that i've never been i'm kind of i'm looking at my uh, i've got a map on, in my office where i've got little pins of everywhere that i've gotten to film and man it's I, it's it's crazy how many places i've gotten to go and it's and it's just because of this job that if i didn't have this job and this opportunity and being as blessed as i am you know i would never have gotten to do and experience and see the things that i that i have um and i and i try my best not to take that for granted like i leave tomorrow morning for iowa to go film some more stuff and as soon as i get back it's to minnesota for a bow fishing trip and it's just all it's all the time and it used to be you would have a two or three month gap in the summertime where all you did was edit now now there's bow fishing there's fishing there's uh product reviews there's hog hunting there's you name it there's always something to do and the content timeline, which I think we'll talk about later of, you know, how things are changing in the industry and content so much more important and the number of content, the volume of content. And now there's really no time off, which time off for me was always having to sit behind a computer and edit. Um, yeah. So but I, I like it that way. I, li- I like a good mixture of travel home, travel home versus, you know, just killing yourself which is what happens every year september october november is just killing yourself on the road then getting back home you've got hard drives full of footage that now you've got to edit so uh <laughs> that's that's always that's always stressful once you've you've got off the road and you've been on the road for i think i did like 30 something days last year get back and you're staring at a computer screen with a bunch of folders that now you've got to dive into and you're like you don't even know where to start yeah well that i think that uh that answered uh, one question I actually posted uh, on a, on a Facebook group last night. You know, I, I just told them that I'd be talking to a guy who, you know, was a professional in the uh, professional videographer, video editor. And if it, it was a, a Facebook group for people who, you know, self film or, or video their own hunts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just asked them if there's any questions that they had in mind. And, and one guy, you know, he had mentioned several questions, but one of them was, you know, would he do it all over again? If, if, uh, would he take the same route if he had to do it all over again? And it sounds like that's a definite yes from you. Oh yeah. No, I, I don't, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't discourage anybody from doing it, but, um, I would absolutely tell you that it is going to, it is extremely hard. It's extremely competitive. There's a lot of guys out there that can do what I do and then do a better job than I do it. Um, there's not a whole lot of guys out there that can separate themselves from being creative and then running a business at the same time. I feel like that's been the, the biggest advantage for me is I can, I know how to communicate. I'm easy to get a hold of. Um, 
I always answer my phone. I reply to emails. I do all the things that you have to do to run a business. I'm not just a creative. Um, and I feel like a lot of guys that try and do this for a living are really, really good at being creative, but they're horrible at being a people person or they're horrible at communicating. They're horrible at getting back to, you know, replying to emails or horrible at deadlines. They kind of work at their own pace and do their own thing. And you can't do that. Not when you want, not when you have clients, when you have deadlines, when you have essentially a business to run, if you're just there being creative, that's great, but you got to pay the bills at the end of the day. Yeah, I tell you, it amazes me, and, and it's across all industries. But what you said there about just people returning calls or, oh or getting back to you, it, it's, my, it amazes my, me how my, many people. That is my biggest pet peeve in life is someone that won't answer the phone, someone that won't reply, somebody that you send a text and they'll reply to you a week later like you just sent it. it, it doesn't. It's unfathomable to me. The technology that we have at our fingertips now, it's harder and harder to get a hold of somebody. And the worst people out there are generally marketing people. They're like catching the Easter Bunny half the time. <laughs> you know, they don't answer. They they never give you a yes or no answer um, if they do answer you to begin with. And I've just found in my business, in my tiny little one man business, that literally the leg up I have on virtually everybody is when you call my phone. I will answer. If I don't answer, I will call you back and it will probably be the same day within probably the same hour. And it drives my wife crazy. But I'm like, I will never I've worked for those people. I know those people. I will never be that guy that you can't get a hold of. Yeah. Well, it's sad that something so simple can set you apart from so many. But oh, it's the, hey, but it's, it's, the simp- it's the simplest things, man. The yeah. simplest things L- literally being easy to get a hold of. And then making it easy for your client to get their content and making it, you know, idiot proof, essentially, you know, for the lack of a better term, for them to access the content that you've created for them. If you can do those two things, those two things right there put you ahead of most people. Yeah. Well, I've kind of led us off track here, but jumping back, um, you know, you told us a little bit about your uh, as far as your best experiences or most memorable experiences to date. what about any bad experiences? You had any uh, close calls oh, out there? Man, I was I actually posted about one the other day on um, on my podcast's Instagram. Um, I had a uh, I did a 15 day uh, brown bear hunt in Alaska in 2017, and I was super excited about it um, because it was my first brown bear hunt. It was my first time to Alaska at the time, and um, I'll never forget we get there. And, uh, there's two guys hunting, um, one guy's hunting first. And then when he kills a bear or the next guy's going to go up and hunt. And this is for a web series for scout look weather. And I remember we get out there and they had killed a bear a couple of days before we got there. And in Alaska, it's legal to hunt the carcass of the bear, which nothing eats them. I don't know why you would want to hunt the carcass. And I remember we get to the, by the time we got there, we didn't leave until after daylight. Cause you don't want to be walking around that place in the dark. And um, we get there and we have to run this um, this boat up river and it's the run in the bottom and we have to get out and push. And after we finally get to this spot, we're standing on the bank of the river and we've, we're standing there for hours and hours and hours. And I'm looking around, I'm like, man, we could build a killer blind right here, sit down, be comfortable and be ready when a bear comes in. But instead, we stood on the bank for 14 hours a day for four straight days. Oh. And I was 
I was hating life. And then on the fourth day on top of it, I got the one of the worst migraines I've ever had in my life. And I literally have a picture of me sitting in the mud and chest waders, like with my arms crossed, just wanting out of that place. And it's only four days into a 15 day hunt. Um, and, and luckily the weather got really bad and we got like half of a day where we couldn't even go out and got to rest a little bit. And then um, we got to where we were only seeing bears like the first 30 minutes of light and the last 30 minutes of light. And we, we just really started focusing on those two times and ended up killing bears and just kind of had to change our strategy. But those first couple of days, man, I was ready to get out of that place. Mm. And, the, and, yeah. and we saw the sun once in 15 days, um, winds blowing sideways, raining. You had to wear chest waders 24 seven. Otherwise you'd have been soaking wet the whole time. And it was just, just mentally, the, the physicality of it wasn't bad unless you, I mean, if you don't mind getting rained on, keeping cameras dry and just the mental grind of the, if that hunt was really, really tough. Yeah, just uh, some, something to keep in mind for for you aspiring uh, videographers wanting in the industry. It's, yeah. it's not all uh, kill no, shots and high fives. No, so. Lord God, no. You, that's what I tell people. The, the the show's the highlight reel of the trip, you know, and half the time it's stretching to make it to, to fit that. You know, I, I can tell you about some miserable trips with outfitters for whitetail hunts that outfitters sell you a bill of goods and you get there and it's not what they say and you don't see a deer for five days sitting on stand all day. And, um, it's, but, but it's the same thing with a hunt. And, you know, I kind of put it in the perspective of, you know, when you go hunting and you sit in the tree stand, you know, you get to go hunting four or five weekends and you don't see anything. But when that deer finally steps out, that 10 seconds of, you know, I guess glory is worth that, you know, the miserable sits and the, the rain and the wind, you know, it makes it all worth it. Um, so it's kind of the same thing, you know, and I had to learn early on in my career um, that there's going to be a lot of bad ones. And I generally know which ones are going to be the bad ones before I go. Um, and I just I'm really good at if I know what I if I know what's expected and I know what I can expect when I get somewhere, I'm usually OK. But my thing is when I get somewhere and I was told one thing and something else happens, that's when it's really tough for me. I'm 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 a mental person to where like, I played baseball in college and I never I'll never forget when we used to have to have like runs for pitchers. When they told us we had to run three miles or four miles, I was fine with that. I could run three or four miles. But when it was those punishment runs where you don't know the distance and they just run tell you to run till you stop, I really struggle with those because I'm one of those definitive people. I need a start spot and an end spot. If I know those two things, I can make it through it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way there. I don't I don't like uh surprises. Yeah, <laughs> I like no. to know exactly what's uh, what's well, going on. And surprises happen a lot and you have to roll with the punches and, and, and kind of fake it till you make it a lot of the time. But um once you do it enough and you understand the process and you're comfortable with the person that you're filming, um it, it becomes a lot easier. But but the hardest part for me is t- trying to create content trying to tell a story when there's nothing happening. How do you fill that time? Because if you're doing television, you've got 22 and a half minutes you've got to fill in that television show. Otherwise, you know, the show that you're filming for has spent a bunch of money on a trip, on a hunt, on production that now they have nothing to show for. So you have to always be working, always trying to be creative, always trying to tell that story, no matter what's happening, good or bad. Yeah. So you've touched on on this a little bit here and there, but what what's some of the things you're working on now? What's some current projects that, that well, you have going on? My biggest project right now is the habit. Um, we have taken the habit off of Sportsman's Channel and it is now on the Mossy Oak Go app. 
So um, there's actually three three of the new episodes are up. And the cool thing about the new episodes is you're not going to have to wait six to eight months after we shoot them for them to air. So they're, you know, they're virtually semi-live. Some of them are, you know, less than a month old. Sometimes they'll be less than a week old. Um, so we're going to be doing 13 episodes. We've got three uh, on the app. I've got another one edited. We just got to shoot interviews for, and the fourth one will be live. And we're our goal this year is to shoot 13 so that's the biggest project this year. Um, I've also got a web series that I'm doing with um, Scout Look Weather, which Scout Look Weather just sold to Hunt Stand. So I don't know if it's going to be under which umbrella anymore, but got a couple of hunts this fall, uh, a couple of whitetail hunts, one in Alberta, one in South Dakota. Um, I'm actually going to, uh, I'm do, doing a lot of stuff with John Dudley with Knock On TV, on which he just does YouTube now. And then, um, also do a lot of client work for Rambo and X stands, uh, diamond blade knives and a couple other people. But right now it's the uh, bow fishing grind, um, is what we're going to be focusing on the next couple of months. If it will quit raining. Um, we haven't, uh, yeah. we haven't got to do a whole lot of bow fishing because everywhere we want to go six and seven foot of water, um, mm. too deep. You know, you want the water, um, levels to be the right you know the right place before you can go bow fishing bow fishing is as dependent or even more dependent on weather than any other form of hunting or shooting um it's it's crazy um we've we've already planned on having three or four done and we haven't shot a single one yet just because it's been raining everywhere yeah now i i I told you this a while back on uh through facebook messenger but I, i i actually stumbled on one of your shows um just by chance, I I downloaded the the Mossy Oak Go app, which, and if you're listening and, and you haven't done that, I would definitely recommend that. Uh, you know, whether it be on a smart TV or your phone, uh, just a ton of great hunting and fishing content, and and it's all there at your fingertips for free. For so, free, exactly. And yeah. it will always be free. But uh, I, I stumbled on a show just by chance. I was I saw that it was uh, it was kind of a DIY and it was it was in Nebraska, which piqued my interest. I, I took my son to Nebraska a couple of years ago to turkey hunt, uh, and we had a great time. And it's definitely a place I want to get back to uh, to turkey hunt and a deer hunt. But don't tell people it, about Nebraska; it's a secret, man. <laughs> yeah, don't go. There's no deer turkey there. None, uh, definitely none. But uh, but this show is called Make It Happen. Yeah, and uh, it was. Really, really well done and really cool, and and I enjoyed it, and and I got a hold of you, and I'm sitting here watching it, having no idea that you had anything to do with it, and and then uh, there you are on screen. So, yep. so um, make it make it happen is an idea that I had at least two years ago. Um, it was actually the, the original idea that came off of knocking on doors, getting permission to whitetail hunt, but um, I, I just always have had the idea or not the idea I've always, you know, the, the biggest struggle in the hunting world is access is you can't afford a lease, can't afford a hunting club, can't afford to go, um, you know, buy your own property. And, you know, guys have, especially in the Southeast, especially in this area, Oh yeah, you know, just like me and you talked about a minute ago, like you want to do, you know, you want to go elk hunting and guys that want to do an antelope hunt, guys that want to kill a Miriam, guys that want to, go shoot prairie dogs um, guys that want to go out into uh, Utah and coyote hunt you, you name it I've heard it sitting around a campfire sitting around a table and hunting camp around home and you know guys are always saying there's all these things they want to do but they can't afford it or they don't have time you know we've all heard the same excuse a million times and you know luckily with this job I've gotten to I've got to travel all over the country 
and getting some really unique perspectives and and really do some really creative things to gain access to hunt. And um, I'm like, why can't this be a series to where we take all these dream hunts that guys have always wanted to do and show them how to do it in a real world time frame and on a real world budget? Because let's be honest, I mean, you, you want to elk hunt, but you can't afford a $20,000 white mountain hunt in Arizona. You know, very few people can. You're going to be one of those guys that either needs to do an over the counter hunt or, you know, you're going to have to draw a tag for a good unit. In, in Wyoming or something. Well, you got you draw your tag. Then what? Where do you go? What gear do you need? How do you get there? How long do you need to stay? How you know? How do you need to save money for that trip? Um, you know, how much is it going to cost you? Are you going to drive? Are you going to fly? You know, all these questions. That's what I want to answer in this series. Is like I want to take that elk hunt that you've always wanted to do and show you the whole process. I want to take that turkey hunt that you've always wanted to do and show you the whole process. And that's what we did with the Make It Happen show. Is um, we, me and a friend of mine, got in the truck. We drove to Nebraska. We knocked on doors, got permission and killed two subspecies of turkeys in essentially 36 hours, really 48 hours. Um, and it costs us like less than $700 to do it. Uh, but most guys think, well, if I kill a Miriam, I've got to go to Colorado, get an outfitter. This, that. No, you don't. Um, and you can do it. And we did it in literally four days. So you take an extra day off of work on a you know three-day weekend and go. Um uh, and it's just a, a concept and an idea that I've ran across so many times, but you know, got, you know, people tell hunting stories, but they never show that side of it. And I wanted the show to be more about the process than the kill, the kill. I wanted it to be a 60, 40, 70, 30 split, you know, more about the process, how we got there, how much it costs, what we did, you know, techniques on um, gaining permission and then showing the hunt at the end. And if we didn't, and if, even if we don't kill anything, I think it's more important about the, the process and the information. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really appeals to me. I mean, I know everybody's different, but, uh, as a, as a DIYer, um, you know, I enjoyed the show. I liked how you, you broke it, everything down from getting permission. Even you even broke down the cost of the trip. Um, you know, just like it says, it was, uh, really well done, really well laid out. Um, and not to get too far off track here, but I do as somebody who's been out West a few times, nothing, you know, obviously nothing to the extent of you, but, uh, you know, I encourage people that don't, don't keep that dream hunt a dream. You know, anybody can go out West and, and do a hunt, do an antelope hunt or, or a mule deer hunt or, or whitetail or whatever. Yep. Um, you know, if you, you might have to make some sacrifices, you know, not, well, not spend that money. That's life, man. On other stuff. Yeah. But it, it can be done. And, and man, I encourage people to, to just set a date, start saving their money and do it. Because I, I you did, know, you can, I did, I did my elk hunt 2017. I did a do it yourself elk hunt. I drove out there, uh, killed an elk on a public land over the counter tag and drove home. And I, I would venture to guess I have less than $2,000 in that trip. That's with the tag. That's with the fuel. That's with everything. But I slept in a tent. I did, you know, I did that whole thing. I didn't use an outfitter. I did it all by myself. Um, and like I told you, that was my 11th elk hunt between filming and hunting before I laid hands on an elk. But it, I'd, it, but I'd give it all up to do that again. You know, I'd, I'd give every form of hunting up to get to elk hunt. But it was one of those things where guys think that they have to spend five to $10,000 to elk hunt. And you absolutely can 
and you can go and you could probably kill a much bigger elk than I did. But just like we were talking about earlier, it's not to me, it's not about how big the elk is. It's about the experience. It's about being out West. It's about all those things. And if you're in, if you're, if you're hunting and you're, and you're a part of this for the right reasons, um, and that's, you know, furthering the sport, you know, being a conservationist, um, being conservation minded in what you're doing, you can absolutely go out and have an opportunity to kill an elk for, I would say you could do it for 1500 bucks, especially if you take a buddy with you and split the gas on the way out there and don't do it by yourself. Like I did, you could absolutely do it. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can definitely keep the cost down with a friend, you know, splitting gas well, and, that, uh, and elk hunting. It's better to do it with two people. Anyway, elk hunting is a team sport. It's just like yeah. turkey hunting. You know, turkey hunting's better with two people. One person calling, one person shooting, you know, moving around, working turkeys. It's the same thing with elk. Get you, you and a buddy, Jump in the truck, take off, get a tent, find some public land somewhere, do some research online, make some phone calls, and go and do it. Yep the the one the one warning I'll give is uh, be prepared because once you go out there, you're going to want to go back every year. I know yep. I do. Oh, but, it's uh, it'll ruin you big time. And anybody that hunts Georgia, if you if you if you enjoy to hunt Georgia, if you enjoy hunting whitetails or turkeys in Georgia, I encourage you to go virtually anywhere else and do that because not not to brag on my home state i was born and raised here but it's better just about everywhere you go does it take time and money to go yes is it worth it yes i don't i mean i'll hunt around home i've got a little farm here but i've got more places and buddies all across the country to go now i don't even hunt around home anymore just because the opportunities other places it's just there's so many people in georgia and there's so and everybody hunts pretty much everybody i know hunts and then you get to places like nebraska and you're you're traveling five and six miles between farmhouses and those guys don't hunt they don't have time they're running cows and they're plowing fields and this that and the other and you drove out there to hunt they're like go for it man i don't care it's it's a different world once you get out of the southeast oh yeah definitely yeah if if you can kill turkeys in georgia i mean you'll be a turkey superstar in kansas or nebraska (laughs) you kill turkeys in georgia and white tails with a bow in georgia you can kill anything anywhere yeah yeah and it did amaze me uh when i went out to kansas this was back when i actually lived in kentucky but i we drove out to kansas to to bow hunt turkeys and uh i had stopped and talked to some a farmer and man, he just couldn't believe we had drove all the way from Kentucky to kill a turkey. He, he, he said, what y'all don't have any, uh, y'all don't have any turkeys there in Kentucky. And, yeah. Uh, oh, that's and, the first, know, that's the first thing that guy in Nebraska said. He said, y'all drove here to kill a turkey from Georgia. Y'all, <laughs> he said, he literally said, y'all are stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> and, and we probably were, but we had a good time. Yeah, it's like vermin out there to them. Oh, so. gosh, they hate them. He told us we needed to kill 100. He's like, y'all ain't coming out here to hunt unless y'all kill 100 of them things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's let's shift gears here now and talk about jumping to kind of a little bit of the, the meat of the interview as far as the state of kind of hunting TV and, and the hunting video industry. And uh, I, I'd kind of like to start by addressing a, a common misconception with outdoor TV. And and I, I mean, I think most people don't have a clue how outdoor television works and, and the fact that it's very different from other network TV. From every other network um, TV. Yeah. yeah. Could could you talk a little bit about that? And Yeah. So um, hunting, when I say hunting shows, I'm talking about Pursuit Channel, Sportsman Channel, Outdoor Channel, your TV, cable 
hunting shows, you know, the three the three major players. Sportsman Outdoor are owned by the same people and Pursuit Channel is owned um, separately from those three. But say you want a hunting show. It's going to be it's it's what we call a pay to play system. So um, I could have a hunting show tomorrow if I wanted it. I've just got to go buy the airtime. Airtime is going to average you between seventy five and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So let's just say for the sake of round numbers, let's say the airtime is one hundred thousand dollars. That's going to get me a certain amount of airings. You generally that's about three airings say on Sportsman's channel. So I've got three airings on Sportsman's channel. I've paid $100,000. That $100,000 gets me three airings a week at certain times. And then with that, I also get an allotment of commercial time. Generally, that's about six minutes of commercial time. So that's 12 commercials I can go and sell for that airtime. So I have to take that 12 minutes and I have to go to sponsors and say, hey, I've got this show. It's going to air at this time. I'm going to have this, you know, this. these are going to be our roundabout numbers for this airtime, this, that, and the other. And I sell those 12 commercial spots. I can buy up to eight. I can buy two more. I can buy up to eight minutes, but they're going to cost me more money to sell those spots. I then take that money to pay for my airtime, to pay for my hunts, to pay for production and all, all this, that, and the other. To to have an outdoor channel show, to have a good network show, it's going to cost you anywhere between 200 to, I know shows that spend well over $400,000 a year in airtime and production. That's not counting their hunts. That's not counting their travel. That's not counting their gear. That's not counting any of that other stuff. So you before you can ever even make money, you've got to break even on um, production and airtime. And, th- and that's why, and I think that's why so many people watch outdoor hunting shows now and they get really, really frustrated. And a lot of people are not watching them anymore is because they feel like the entire hunting show is an ad for wild game innovations or this, that, and the other, whatever, because that's the only way those shows are going to pay that money and make any money is that they have to hawk those products and put those in your face because that's what they essentially have. They're slaves to their sponsors. Um, the only way they're getting sponsor dollars is if they meet those guidelines and those deliverables that they're given to be able to pay those airtimes. So the other side of that coin is how your A&Es and your discoveries work, which is what they do is they go out and they find content that they like and they pay the show to produce the show. The show makes money to produce it, to tell the story that A&E wants. And then A&E takes that show and they sell to advertisers. So it's a lot simpler, but you have to have a larger network that has I really think Sportsman Outdoor could do it, and they do do it on some scale. They do have some original series. Generally, in my opinion, their original series aren't very good, um, and I think that's kind of where they've missed the mark. Um, but you think about a Discovery or an A&E, they're going to have the same 10 shows that are going to run 24-7. The last count on Sportsman Outdoor and Pursuit, there was over 700 hunting shows. It's really, it. it's really, really hard to gain following, to create market share, to set yourself apart when wow. there's that much, that many shows out there. Um, and, and it's one of those things to where if you've got a little money, you can have a hunting show. There's, there's really no precedent or there's no barrier to entry other than that money. Um, but you can't be on A&E unless they invite you. 
you know, unless they say, Hey, we're going to pay you for your show. Um, so that, that's, that's the difference. And that, uh, of course, that with that model, that's where you hear some of the complaints about, you know, the quality of the shows mm-hmm. and, and and people saying, well, you know, I could produce something like that or, or oh, trust you me. know, there's, there's trust better footage on YouTube. Yeah, and- trust me, as a producer, it sucks. It makes it makes our job that much harder. But if it were up to us, the show would look different. But um, the and luckily, I think that that model is dying. I think the pay to play model is dying because. People have too many other options now. They have the Mossy Up Go app. They have Netflix. They have Amazon Prime. They have YouTube. They have all these places to where people can give them content. They don't have to pay airtime. They can not have to hawk everything in front of you for sponsors in order to get deliverables made. And there's other ways to create content to add value to that show. And they don't have to be on the network anymore. And they and essentially, you can create a web show for gosh, man, a tenth of the amount of money that it's cost to do a television show. Yeah, but I mean, but the hunting industry is just like every other industry. Is we're going to do exactly what the mainstream does, or just five to ten years behind it? So now that <laughs> Netflix is, you know, Netflix and YouTube are stupid, stupid popular. We will, we will figure that out in the next three to five years. Yeah. So, I mean, do you foresee a, a change in the, obviously, you know, there's some change happening, but um, the as far as Outdoor Channel and Sportsman's Channel Pursuit, um, I mean, do you foresee a change in that model in the near future? Or? I, I see them having to do something because um, I know a lot of shows that are leaving. I know a lot of shows that are renegotiating their air times. I know. I know they're getting a lot of pressure. They tried the Mossy, the MOTV app, the My Outdoor TV app, and that one's not done very well. I, what I tell people right now is there's a lot of different options. Um, Mossy Oak Go, there's Onyx has their own content. I'm sure Hunt Stand's going to come out with some stuff. I'm sure Realtree's going to do an app pretty soon. Um, there's still Outdoor Sportsman in Pursuit. There's YouTube. There's Carbon TV. There's a lot of different places for your content to live. Essentially, what what's happening right now is people are betting on their horse. Who's going to be the front runner in this content game? Somebody's going to come out as the clear leader. Um, do we know who that is yet? No, it's way too early to tell. I think sportsmen and outdoor have the infrastructure, the money, and the content to have a really good platform. They just don't, they hadn't figured out how to deliver it yet or how to monetize it yet. Um, uh, to me, Moss, what Mossy Oak's doing is amazing. Um, they're also only letting certain content on. They're not just letting everybody on. So they're really limiting um, and they're keeping it to quality content. And I'm really fortunate to have two shows on there right now uh, to make it happen and the habit. So it's, it, it speaks volumes for them to know that they are really worried about what goes on their network and what goes on their app because they want people to view it and to be immersed in it and to watch a lot of it. And I think, I I don't know what the numbers are, but their initial numbers are really good is what I'm hearing. Um, And I've heard a lot of good people or a lot of people tell me about like you stumbled across it um, that didn't know that I did something. And, um, or didn't know so-and-so was on the app or so-and-so had another show on the app or whatever. And that's encouraging. Um, I, I, I think kind of like what I said earlier, I think people are betting on horses right now in the next 
two to three years, somebody's going to come out ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, definitely it's just so easy now with, with smart TVs and, mm-hmm. and being able to, you know, stream straight from your, uh, your smartphone to your TV. It's just completely changing the way we consume content. And I, I mean, I know it has on my end. I, I quit subscribing to the, the different outdoor channels years ago. And, and pretty much, you know, it's strictly, there's so much content available free, you know, why, why pay for those channels? And, and I can kind of pick and choose what I want to watch. You know, I'm not, I'm not forced to watch the, the guy, you know, sitting over a, a food plot and mm-hmm. a shooting house. And, um, but so, th- there yeah. isn't, there is an inherent problem with that though. And I'm all for, free podcasts and free content and this, that, and the other. But, but the big but is, why is there an exception for Netflix? Why is there an exception for Amazon Prime? Why is there an exception for some of these platforms that it's okay to pay a little bit for them, but we expect our hunting content to be free? <laughs> and this is this yeah. is the conundrum that is is facing everybody right now, is... We are willing to pay ten ninety nine or twelve ninety nine or whatever it is for Netflix a month. We're willing to pay whatever it is $129 a year for Amazon Prime to get their content, to use their service. But by God, we want our podcast for free and we want our hunting shows for free. That those two those two things can't live in the same place unless the quality of what you're watching in the hunting world isn't what you're going to get in Netflix because my, my reasoning, my justification for why we're willing to pay for Netflix and not willing to pay for our hunting is because it's inherent and in understanding to us that Netflix costs money to make. Well, so does hunting. Yeah. So does fishing. Absolutely. Um, should it be 10, 12, nine, nine a month? Maybe not, but there is there is a part of me as a consumer that loves the fact that it's free, but as a producer, that limits everything that I can do because it is free. That limits my production, that limits my time frame, that limits my clientele, that limits the sponsors, that limits everything. Because if this is free, then what what value does it really have? Whereas Netflix has, I think it's 600 million subscribers that pay $12.99 a month and they keep going up. Mm. But that's fine for us to pay that because that content is good and it costs money. So does hunting. And that's kind of where I'm at is, is where, where do you draw that line? Yeah. Yeah. There it's, it's a balance. Like you said, I mean, I don't think I would have a problem paying for a, a Mossio go type app. Or, or, you know, something that's providing hunting content. If, like you said, if, if the quality's there and it's the, the type of shows, I have an option to watch the type of shows I want to watch yeah. um, versus an outdoor channel where, you know, you, you watch what's on yeah. uh, at, at the time. Um, but, yeah, the, I guess the problem is it's just such a flooded market with people pumping out free content. Um, you know, it, it, I guess, yeah, it's, it's tough to to compete against that it's kind of the same thing that that drove down the i guess the value in having shows on these channels is um so many people are out there filming and and trying to get a show on tv that they were willing to do it and and make pretty much no money at it and and take on these sponsors and and advertisers at extremely discounted rates and um 
the manufacturers or, or these companies no longer had to to pay as much money for the uh, these commercial air spots because you know these these shows are basically just doing it for free or at a loss mm-hmm. in in many cases. Which that was one question I did have uh, that I kind of jumped over there. I mean, what? And I know it's strictly a guess, but I mean, what what percentage of shows do you think on these these outdoor TV? Uh, networks are actually turning a profit. I've got a great answer for that. And this makes the most sense for people listening. If you want to know what shows are making a living and making money doing the show, watch their show. And during the commercials, if they are in their commercials, they're making money. If they're not in their commercials, they're struggling or they're losing. You watch Lee and Tiffany, and guess what? You see them in the commercial for Traditions Muzzleloaders. You see them in the commercial for Scent Killer. You see them in the commercial for Under Armour. You watch, you, you name it, you see the show for so-and-so. They don't, you, they're running the generic commercials that come on. They're not, they're, they're struggling. They may be breaking even. They may be making a little money, but... I would I would venture to guess out of the 700 network network shows, 30, 40 of them are making a good living, making money. A hundred or so of them are, are breaking even. The rest of them are going to be around one or two years, and they'll fly, you know they'll turn over and there will be something new. Yeah. So what's what's the difference between those thirty and forty and the other six hundred and seventy? I mean, what's it what's there's, it take? There's there's a couple things in my opinion. There's production value, which costs money. Um, those shows have production value. Um, there's a couple that don't have production value um, that are, are making really good money, and I'll explain the one I'm talking about specifically in a minute. But the thing that sets them apart are they have something unique that nobody else does. They have production value. Most of them have a track record. Um, lots of these shows, like the Bone Collectors, the Lee and Tiffany's, those shows have been around a long time. They got in at the golden age, and they weathered the storm. A lot of these shows that are coming in now have to weather a lot tougher storm and have to lose money for two and three years before they can become profitable, and most people don't have the money to hang around that long. But production value and that X factor um, is what is what puts set shows apart. The one show I'm talking about that always rates well, always does really well, but the production value is terrible <laughs> is um, uh, Tim Wells. Um, and, and people watch Tim, people watch uh, relentless pursuit because of Tim Wells. He's a character. He's over the top. He does crazy stuff that nobody else does. That's why they watch him. His production value doesn't have to be great. And he probably doesn't spend very much to nothing on his show as far as production goes. He just does a bunch of hunts, which that's what people want. That's what his fan base wants. Then you have on the other side of that coin, Lee and Tiffany, who have Tiffany as the personality. She's an attractive girl and they kill giants all over the place, no matter what they're hunting. And they have probably, I would venture to guess, the most expensive production out there. They spend a crap ton of money. But that's what Lee wants. He wants the best show he can possibly have, and he knows that costs money. But with that value comes value. It takes money to make money, and he right. understands that. You know, he's a businessman, and he understands how to make money, and he understands how to move product for people. Um, look at Pigman. Pigman, why he's why he is Pigman is because he has great production, and he's Pigman. Nobody else is Pigman. 
you know, the, the, the shows that are out there where they've got four and five guys that are your, that we've heard it a thousand times that, Hey, we're, we're just like you. We're doing this hunting show and that's why you should watch us. Those don't ever last because there's nothing proprietary about them. There's nothing special about them. Going, going and killing deer is probably the easiest part of it. Getting the, you know, getting the hunts and getting stuff dead is the easiest part. The good production and having the money to support a good show. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically you better either have a unique angle or be a, uh, an extremely likable person. To, yeah. You, you to, have to, to be able to make, you've got to be, you've got to be, you have to have that X factor. And yeah. the only way that you, you know what that, you know, that, and you can, you recognize that X factor, uh, you know, Waddell has it. Pigman has it. Tim Wells has it. You know, those are the people that have been there, done it. They know how to do it. They know how to be on camera. They know how to, when an animal comes in, they know how to get it done. Like, freaking Waddell's a killer. I think I've watched Waddell for 20-something years, and I think I've seen Waddell make one bad shot, and he he, he literally tracked that elk down and shot it again. Um, it, it, he's a killer at the same time that he is a great character on camera. He's yeah. relatable. He's funny. He's enjoyable to watch. That's why he's been as successful as he has been. He is one of those guys that people want to be in camp with. Another one, Kip Campbell. People like Kip. He's funny. He's relatable. People want to be in camp with Kip. He's not just some random guy on camera trying to be something that he's not. And I think that's where a lot of these shows that are that are still around. That's the reason they're still around is because they don't have the, the for-profit structure. And that's another thing I should probably say is you got to think, you got to look at TV shows a couple different ways too. There's not all TV shows are there to make money. A lot of them are designed to lose money or to be a marketing arm for a certain company. And their, their whole purpose isn't to try and sell sponsor dollars. You look at a, a Primos type show, you know, people love Primos, but their show isn't there to make money. Their show is there to be a marketing arm for Primos. Look, right. same thing with Realtree, same thing with Mossy Oak, same thing with these big brands that have, you know, Hunt Fool has a show. Um, Swarovski Optics has a show. These shows aren't there. They're not designed to make money. These shows are designed to be a marketing arm for these companies. So you can't put those shows on the same playing field as Bone Collector, as Lee and Tiffany, because Lee and Tiffany's show is made to be a for-profit, you know, that's their job. It's not, they, they are marketers for all these other companies, whereas Swaski's Optics Quest, that is their marketing arm for their hunting side of their, of their business. Yeah. All right, well, let's, uh, before we, I burned up too much of your time here, I, I do want to touch on some, kind of some tips and information uh, that that these guys that are they're starting to film hunts or maybe they've been filming hunts for a little while out there um, that they can take away from this and I, I thought we'd just start maybe with with some equipment and maybe talk about uh, obviously the biggest factor in in you know equipment selection of course is the the person's budget uh, so what would you recommend for for someone starting out you know on a pretty modest budget wanting to video their hunts? Well, um, and I think not only is the budget important, but um, the goal is important. If this is something you're just wanting to film and come back and show to your buddies and make home videos, then you don't need 
a whole lot of camera. You need, a, you know, some point and shoot camera that's got a good zoom that's, you know, got an auto function that you can point it in that general direction and get a kill shot. You're not trying to tell a story or make a short film. So virtually any camera that shoots HD that has a zoom function on it, you can virtually do that with. Um, there's, you know, you get what you pay for in the camera world. Um, a great little camera to do that with is like a, uh, XA20, a Canon XA20, uh, older versions, the XA10. I think they even make an XA30 now. Um, those cameras have zoom. They have XLR inputs. They have all the functions that you would want to step up your game later on. They don't have the dedicated buttons for manual um, exposure and things of that nature. But uh, if that's what you're getting into and trying to learn, that's a great camera to start with. What about... Uh as far as DSLRs, you hear a lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys are using DSLRs, but, you, but that's a question you often see as well, you know, whether or not should I start with a camcorder or a, uh, you know, a, a inexpensive DSLR. Yeah. I think that also, that goes back to the same question as what the, what's the goal. Um, I think if you're even, even considering about getting serious about doing any kind of filming or production, you should start with a DSLR because, the great thing about a DSLR is it's going to have removable lenses. It's going to allow you to learn how to use different lenses and what different lenses will get you and attain in the field. It's going to teach you how to run a camera in manual. Um, it's going to teach you how to run your f-stop manually, your shutter manually, your focus manually, all of those things that you're going to need when you get into series production. Um, instead of you know using a camcorder as a crutch to do all those things for you, um, because the, it's going to do all those things for you, but it's not going to do it in a way to make it look cinematic. It's not going to separate your, you know, your subject from the background. It's not going to be able to blow out your background. It's not going to be able to do all the things that you need to know how to do by running a camera and manual. And the great thing about a DSLR is generally they do both things, uh, video and pictures. And um, I think that's something that's valuable is to learn how to not only just do video, but learn how to take good images um, and you can do that with a DSLR and you can really expand a DSLR to do a lot more with various lenses, microphones, rigs. They're small, they're light, they're very packable. Um, they're generally um, a lot more inexpensive than a professional, um, you know, three chip camera like I run. But if you can run a DSLR effectively and confidently, you can run just about anything. In any certain thing to look for in a in a DSLR, if somebody's looking to purchase one, um, um, I think if you if you've never ran anything before, you need to go with a Sony line because the Sony line of uh, mirrorless cameras have the most capabilities and they're the most feature rich for your money. Um, the A seven R two, A seven R three, A seven S two. Uh, you can get into a body pretty cheap and then start buying lenses, man. Get you a general 24 to 70, 24 to 105 style lens and start shooting stuff. Um, there are cheaper versions. I don't, I couldn't tell you the model numbers to save my life cause I don't mess with them. Um, but, uh, you, you really can't go wrong. I'm personally am a Canon guy. I started out with Canon. I like Canon better. It's bigger. Uh, Body-wise, fits my hand better. I like where the buttons are better, but it's just because I started shooting on that. I think if you don't have any preconceptions as to what you shot on, I think a Sony is a great way to go. Um, they're both fairly rugged, but neither one are made to do what we do with them. So just take care of them. And don't ever be afraid to buy a used camera. I tell this to people all the time. People think a camera is something you should buy new. I buy used gear virtually all the time. I can't, the last new thing I bought was a drone. 
which I don't think you should buy used drones, but um, uh, I virtually everything I buy is used because most everything you buy used comes from a studio or comes from a wedding photographer where they're in a nice controlled environment. Very few people are doing what we do with them. Like I would, I would never advise you to buy used gear that I'm selling just because it's, it's been used. It's been beaten up. It's been, um, abused, uh, just because of the environment that we put them in. They're riding in the back of the Ranger, getting dust all over them. They're getting rained on. They're getting drug up a tree limb, 30 (laughs) feet up in a tree. You know, they're just, these cameras are not designed to do what we do with them. And there's not a good option out there. Um, so just, keep that in mind if that what you need to look at when you're looking at a used camera look at how many hours it has on it you know you know virtually under 100 hours you're fine and if you're especially if you're buying a camera that's mirrorless um there, there's vir- virtually no moving parts so there's really not a whole lot that can wear out with them so and look at them cosmetically if they don't have they low hours they're mirrorless and they uh they look nice on the outside cosmetically buy it man i do it all the time ebay craigslist facebook marketplace all the time now if you're going the the camcorder route or the video camera route um i mean it's 4k pretty much a necessity at this point or what's your thoughts on that i don't think it is um especially if you're not doing if you're not doing client work it's not you you got to remember the only time 4k is a necessity is when everybody's homes and their TVs at home are 4K and they're streaming 4K. Um, I would venture to guess 99% of televisions out there are still broadcasting 720, maybe 1080. Um, when TVs start going 4K and that's prevalent, then you need to start worried about shooting 4K. Do all my cameras sh- shoot 4K? Yes, they do. Do I ever shoot in 4K? Very, very rarely. Um, it is a, it's essentially a gimmick to sell cameras and to add, you know, to, to make them more expensive. If you have a 1080 camera only, you're perfectly fine. I bet I shoot 4k three or four times a year. And I, you know, I do this professionally because 4k does one, you know, does a couple of things for you. It gives you an option to be able to bump in and crop in and get a tighter shot, but it also creates a huge hard drive, a huge space for a hard drive. It's harder to edit. It takes up more space on a card when you're shooting um, there's just a lot of drawbacks to it. Yeah. All right. Well, obviously the camera is just really just one small piece of the, the overall equipment needs yeah. of a videographer. So uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the accessories that you just absolutely necessary to, to yeah. get started in well, this? The, the Another thing to, 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 to not to get ahead of myself, but the camera, the camera is important. But I would rather have someone that understands that camera, that knows how to run it better and is confident with that camera. I would rather have someone that has a cheapo DSLR that knows it backwards and forwards, that's confident in it and can produce versus somebody who's got a $10,000 camera who doesn't know how to run it, that all they're going to do is worry about are they exposed correctly? Are they in focus the whole time they're filming? Well, when you're when you're worried about if you're doing things right in camera, you're not thinking about producing good content. You're worried about what's going on with your camera. So number one, first first and foremost, be confident in whatever you're shooting with. A better camera doesn't make you a better shooter. Being better, more confident in your camera makes you a better shooter. Second thing is the support that you buy for your camera is as important or more important than the camera itself. Spend money on a good camera arm 
but even more important than the camera arm, spend more money on a fluid head that's a good fluid head. A lot of guys will spend, you know, three, four hundred dollars on camera arm and they'll buy a cheapo Manfrotto hundred dollar fluid head, call it good. <laughs> what that camera what that camera sits on is as important as what's supporting it. So don't skimp on fluid heads. Don't skimp on microphones. Audio is as important as video. Don't skimp on um, lights. Make sure you get good lights. You know, everything costs money and you're not going to get anything cheap. It's just like anything else. Um, and when you when you go to budget to buy your first camera, say your budget's $2,500. Well, your budget's really $1,500 to $1,700, $1,700 for your camera because the rest of that needs to go to the support. Right. Um, don't forget that you have to have other things other than just your camera. You need batteries. You need media. You need camera arms. You need tripods. You need lights. You need covers. Um, all of those cases to put them in. That's another thing that people overlook. You spend the money, buy a Pelican case if you're ever going to travel with it. Um, make sure that it's protected. If you put it in the back of the truck and it gets rained on, you don't lose your camera. Um, water and cameras don't mix. What about wireless mics? Do I need wireless mics to film hunts? I, in my opinion, yes. That adds so much value to your what you're filming is having good audio. Uh, it is a pain in the butt. It's a pain in the butt to <laughs> carry them. It's a pain in the butt to wear them. It's a pain in the butt to keep batteries in them. It's a pain in the butt to monitor them. But you absolutely need to use wireless mics because not only does that help you get good audio, if you're filming someone else, it gives you a line of communication that you can't have any other way. If you're monitoring your audio and the guy you're filming has his mic on, he can tell you something's coming without moving, without making a noise, without doing anything but whispering in the mic. You automatically know he can communicate with you where the animal is and you've just added value by just having those mics. Buy some Sennheiser mics, buy the new Rode Filmmaker kit mics. They're going to be super clean. They're going to be expensive. Take care of them. Um, worry, you know, the wires is what you have to worry about the most. The, the bodies and the, ba- the, the, the body kits on the mics are generally pretty rugged, but the uh, mic cables are what you got to worry about. Those things get torn and drug through limbs and, you know, you know, caught on corners of blinds and get ripped off. And those are expensive microphone cables. So just take care of them, tape up the bases, um, give them a little bit longer life. Yeah, it's it's definitely when it comes to wireless mics. I guess it's the the old uh, buy once, cry once. I've, I've tried the cheapos. Yeah, no, uh, don't buy the wasting cheapos. your money. Yep, that's one thing that you absolutely get what you pay for. All right, so okay, I have all my equipment now. Um, what are some things that I need to know to produce good footage with? You? I mean, what are what are some of the the main settings on the camera I need to be aware of? What what's what are the keys to getting good footage with, with your equipment? Oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a camp with somebody who's trying to run a camera and they hand me their camera and they say, Hey, set this thing to where I can just go and use it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I laugh every time because there's never ever going to be a time where I can set your camera to where you can use it in all situations. Um, right. learning to run your camera in manual needs to be your absolute number one goal. Because that's going to make your footage and your production that much better. Um, you need to understand light, how light works, and how your camera does in certain light situations. Because when you're hunting, generally, most of the time, it's going to be low light. You need to know what your camera does in low light, how it performs, how to get more light in your camera if you need it, 
and what that footage looks like when you bring it back. Just because it looks good in your little LCD screen does not look mean it's going to look good when you bring it into your computer. So you need to understand what that is and you have to do, you have to test it. You have to play with it. Um, as far as getting good footage, it's everything to do with light. Um, learn how to manipulate light, learn where light needs to be to get the best footage. Learn that when somebody has got a, uh, when, when it's noon in the middle of the day and it's the harshest light, that's generally the worst time to try and video something. When you've got really harsh shadows and harsh lines, that looks bad. The first hour of light, the last hour of light, that's the best time to film. When the light's flat and everything looks the good, or you've got good cloud cover, that's when the footage is going to look the best. Another thing you need to do, and I think a lot of guys that are up and coming, they get stuck in the rut of filming everything waist up, you know, medium. Everything looks the same. Every time they stop to talk, they step, you know, six foot back, they hold the camera chest level, and they film somebody chest level. Don't be afraid to get tight. Don't be afraid to get wide. Don't be afraid to move around. You know, change your angle, wide, medium, tight, wide, medium, tight, wide, medium, tight, all the time. And, you know, if you get somebody shooting a bow, get the same shot in all three of those versions. Look up at them, look down at them, you know, look from behind them, you know, don't get in front of them, don't get shot. But it's (laughs) like, just try and be creative. So many guys get stuck in that rut of standing six feet away, camera chest high. It's really hard to get creative and good stuff when every frame looks the same. Yeah. All right, well, I guess digging into that a little more as far as the shots to get, of course, everybody knows, you know, you want to film the the deer or whatever animal it is coming in and and you want to make sure, you know, you're in good for the shot itself. But what are some other key pieces you want to make sure that you capture, you know, so you can put the whole story together? So the best way I know how to to, to tell this story or to, to, to describe this is, what you're doing is you're not filming a hunt. You're telling a story. You're filming a you're filming a show that just happens to be about hunting. So what does a story have? A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So I have to take my camera and I have to use it to show you, show the viewer a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay, that sounds extremely general and far-fetched. What do you mean by that? Okay, how can I show you the beginning of something? I show a sunrise. I show someone making coffee. I show someone getting dressed in the morning. You show me, you don't tell me. That's the beginning. How do I, you know, what's the middle? That's everything that happens in between. Getting in the truck, cranking the truck, driving down the road, climbing the tree stand, getting your opening interview. That's the middle. That's all the meat. And then the end, how do we end it? A sunset, a deer hanging on a, uh, you know, a skinning rack, putting the turkey in the bed of the truck or slung over your shoulder. Show me, don't tell me. Every scene and every video has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So think about, think about you break down a deer hunt. Well, the first scene is getting up and getting ready. So that scene needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The next scene is getting in the tree stand and giving an interview to set it up. That scene needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The deer coming in and getting shot, that's another scene, beginning, a middle, and an end. The interview and the post-interview after the shot, beginning, a middle, and an end. The recovery of the deer, beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not hard. It's literally as simple as you can 
you can think. It's just you've got to know how to use your camera to get a shot that represents a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then you just wrap that in a nice bow in editing, add some music, and you're done. <laughs> now, now, how much of that is how much of that is done? I guess post post harvest. Um, I mean, do you when you're filming these hunts, are you going ahead and capturing all that stuff prior to the actual harvest of the animal or is as some m- of this as much, are you waiting? As much as I possibly can I get before. I try and tell the story as it's happening. Um, a lot of times after you know, as an animal comes in and you know, you shoot and the animal runs off, there's only certain things you can get while that's happening. You're generally focused on your animal. And then I always shoot what we call cutaways or recreates where you get people clipping into the release and drawing back and communicating, you know, here he comes and all that stuff. Because when that's happening, I'm focused on the animal. I'm not going to say, hey, hey, dear, wait right there. Let me get my hunter, you know, talking to <laughs> me and then let me come back to you. That That's not how it works. But, you know, I know a lot of guys that are against recreating, you know. So if you're against recreating, then by all means, put up a second angle, you know, GoPro or a whatever to get, you know, all those things live, which I also try and do that. I still shoot cutaways even if I do get a good second angle. But to me, it's entertainment. And I'm trying to tell the best version of that story. That's why cutaways and recreates are perfectly acceptable to me because those things happened. I'm just showing you them how they happened. They just might not have happened in the real time that you're watching them. Right. So yeah. to me, it's, it's, it's completely, it's storytelling, it's storytelling one oh one. that's another thing that you got to think about when you're getting an interview, when you're getting someone to talk to the camera and they're talking about, Hey, we're here set up in a, you know, this hardwood bottom, you know, it's really cold this morning. The wind's blowing out of the North, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, guess what? They just, they just told you it's really cold. They told you the wind's blowing out of the North. So what can I do? I can get a shot of uh, maybe some frost on leaves that shows that it's cold. I can get a shot of uh, leaves blowing in the wind or trees swaying because the wind's blowing. Those two things just showed me what he just told me. So not only do we need to get good interviews, we need to get shots that represent all the things that are being said. So if it's you, you have to support the story. So beginning, a middle, and an end, and then support what's being said. Yeah, and I've heard you talk about this uh, before, but you know you get those shots because. You don't want to, when you're producing the video itself, you don't want these long shots of the same thing, right? I mean, you want to break it up into a a lot of smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. Well, I I do. You know, and that's a personal preference. And I tell people... Um, you know, there's a lot of YouTube content out there that's really long form and they show a lot of long shots and it's really drawn out. And it's not that that's not right and there's nothing wrong with it. Some people like that. But think about every movie, every network, you know, sitcom, every show you've ever watched that's a high production value that costs a lot of money. Next time you watch that show, go and watch Breaking Bad. Go and watch... Um, the new show Yellowstone, go and watch any high value production and count how long each shot's there. They're never there longer than three to five seconds. The shot needs to change to, to keep people engaged, to keep production value up, to keep the story rolling, the show pace going. My shot will change every three to five seconds, sometimes even sooner than that. The only time I'll have a shot go longer than five seconds is if it's an animal coming in. And then generally I'll have a cutaway shot to go there too. I don't ever 
lag on one shot very long because I have footage to support that. And I'm generally editing the music to music beats, which require me to cut and edit. So just keep that in mind that really long shots, that's where you lose a lot of viewers is when you've got one shot that happens over and over again or is lasts a long time that doesn't have any meat or any you know reason for someone to stay. Um, that's why, you know, if you want to see, you know, if you want to see how we created this animal, go watch a cartoon and watch how quick a shot changes for cartoons to keep kids engaged. Um, we've created this monster. Yeah, it, it <laughs> it's amazing. And, and like I said, it's something you don't really as just a normal viewer. You don't even notice or pay attention to. No, but it's, it's until every, you go back and specifically look for it, like you were talking about. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's just a, a constant scene to scene or shot to shot, shot to shot. Yep. And then watch and then watch any of those shows and and they'll show you a beginning and middle and end. They'll show you. They won't tell you. They'll show you that house. They'll show you that sunrise. They'll show you that moon. They'll show you these things that subconsciously tell me things are changing. Time is passing. The day is ending. The day is beginning. They'll tell you all these things subconsciously. They won't ever say it's the next day like we do in hunting shows or the next morning we went here. And they don't don't tell me. Show me. Yep. And that that all plays into I've heard you say this before as well about. Um, the value in editing footage, um, of course, not only having that knowledge will not only make you more employable, if that's your goal yep. uh, to have a job in the hunting industry, but it also uh, makes you a better videographer. Uh, can oh, you much kind of talk about that? Yeah. Well, learning how to edit is the single number one reason um, to, to not only get a job, but to make you a better shooter. Once you understand the editing process, I bet you shoot three quarters less video because you'll be in the field and you'll know exactly what you need and you won't shoot the crap that you don't need. Um, I've had clients that have had other camera guys or producers that have came in and they say, man, you're not shooting very much video. And I'm like, well, I don't need anything else. I know what I need. And uh, they'll see the finished product and they're like, holy crap, you did know what you needed. And I'm like, yeah, I, <laughs> there's very rarely I shoot something that I don't use because I know what I need. No, I know. I know what I don't. Um, but the only reason I know that is because I edit and I put the whole process together. And as I'm shooting, I'm editing in my head. I know where I'm going to use that. I know the reason for this shot. It's not just what I say, vomit through the lens. People just vomit through the lens of their camera and they just film everything. Well, you can teach a monkey how to do that. There's no, there's no skill whatsoever in just hitting the record button and following somebody around. You'll never see me do that because there's no value in that. You're wasting your time. The value is getting the shots that mean something, shooting with a purpose. Every time you shoot, you have to shoot with a purpose. What's, what's the best way to learn these days as far as video editing? What, what would you recommend for somebody wanting to? Well, there's, there's several places. Um, I mean, there's several, you know, post, post-education places and colleges you can do. I mean, I give classes. Um, there's always the best version, which is YouTube. You can learn anything you want is, you know, through YouTube. Um, but really, the best way to learn is to go out and shoot stuff, bring it in and start cutting it and then screw up and find out and research how to make it better. And a lot of that is jargon, is understanding what words mean. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people get hung up is they don't understand what a, a jump cut is. They don't understand what a transition is. They don't understand what, 
you know, a channel of audio or a codec or, you know, these things that, you know, we throw around because we understand what they are. But, you know, the everyday guy might not understand what that is. They might understand if they shoot something in 30 frames, and try and bring it into a 24 time, uh, you know, a 24 frame timeline that something might be jacked up and they don't understand why. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff in editing that will come with experience. But, you know, the best way to learn is to go out and shoot stuff, bring it in and say, dang, I really wish I had a shot of this and make that much better. I wish I had a shot of this and make it that much better. So, um, you know, there's you know, there's college classes, you know, there's guys like me that give classes and then there's there's YouTube, which is the free way of doing it. But you've got to really dig around and spend a lot of time on YouTube to get it. Oh, yeah. Trust me. Yep. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. You definitely have to pick and choose, yeah. uh, you know, whose advice you take on, oh, yeah. on some of that. And see if you can get somebody that speaks good English. Yeah. <laughs> well, Caleb, man, we are uh, well over an hour now. I don't want to keep you any longer here on a on a Saturday. Like oh, so I know good, you're, you're heading out of town tomorrow. Um, for the listeners who want to know more about, you know, Caleb Copeland or, or check out some of your work, what's the what's the best place to keep up with you? On um, social media. Yeah, social media is at Cope Creative. C-O-P-E Creative is my Instagram handle. Um, I also have a podcast that is devoted just to outdoor content creation. And that's a, a Redneck Tech podcast. Um, it's at Redneck Tech Podcast on uh, Instagram. And uh, my website's copeland-creative.com. Yeah, and I, I got a confession on, the, on your podcast there. I'd actually... Um, when I first found out about it, which was you had, you had had several episodes out by the time I first heard about it. And I went on there and pretty much listened to all those. And I thought I'd subscribed. And uh, when I set up this interview with you, I got thinking, man, I haven't, I wonder if he had to set that aside, you know, got busy or whatever. And I just went back and looked today and seen that I was not subscribed and you have a good number of episodes on there now. <laughs> so I got a lot of catching up to do, which is, it's not a bad thing. So yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, anybody out there interested in, in videoing your own hunts or editing that kind of stuff, the, just that side of the hunting industry, definitely check that out. Appreciate it, man. Thank but, you. But, but Caleb, again, I, I thank you for taking your time out with us today and, uh, look forward to kind of keeping up with, with what you're doing throughout the, uh, the coming year man i I truly appreciate it now anytime you need anything holler at me all right good deal man what a great interview there with caleb i hope you got as much out of it as i did um one thing i I made a rookie mistake there and forgot to ask caleb to plug where you can find him on social media and where you can see some of his work so i'll be sure to put some links in the show notes where where you can kind of keep up with with what caleb is doing other than that, I just want to say thanks to all of you who are tuning in every every week and those of you who have left us a rating or a review on iTunes or some of the other uh, podcasting platforms. That is much appreciated. Uh, and if you haven't taken the time to do that, I would I would encourage you to do so. Uh, it just helps. Honestly, it helps keep me motivated to see that, uh, to see that that you guys are listening and, and getting something out of this. Hopefully you are. Um, and if you're not, hey, you know, send us a message. Let us know who you'd like to hear on here or what kind of information that you're wanting to learn. And, and we'll definitely t- try to incorporate that. We want it to to really be a broad spectrum of hunting across Georgia. So, you know, we're going to have guys on here talking about deer, about turkey, about waterfowl, uh, hogs, whatever the case may be, public land, private land. We're going to talk about land management. Um, just try to cover the whole gamut 
of hunting here in Georgia. So hopefully we'll have a little something for everybody. Every episode may not be for you. And hey, that's okay. That's the good thing about these podcasts. You know, you can just skip right over one if it's not something you're interested in. Um, But we certainly appreciate you tuning in each and every week. So with that, until next time, again, I'm Brian Grossman with the Georgia Field Hunting Podcast, and we'll see you guys in the field this fall.